In our multimedia age, we have grown accustomed to realizing that while we've actually grown skeptical of seeing anything, we find that if we're given angles on the news, there's always some sort of bent. There's always some sort of bias. And as a result of that bias, we're always trying to get the full picture and the full story. We know that a different camera angle can reveal things from a very different lens and different perspective. And as a result of that, we maybe don't have the full perspective that we ought to have. I think James 2 is one of those passages that we have had one angle upon when we've looked at it. And throughout church history, this passage, especially since the Reformation in the 1500s, has been primarily viewed in terms of its relationship, in terms of how Paul addresses the issues of faith and works. But we have to realize that there's probably been quite a bit of confusion over this passage. Martin Luther in the 1500s would say that he, well, he recognized that James should be part of Scripture. He placed it as an appendix to the Scriptures, calling James a right strawy epistle, that it was a weak epistle, because in it there was no clear doctrine of justification by faith alone. In fact, James, in the passage that we read this morning, says that it is not faith alone that justifies, but works. Throughout the history of Protestantism, there has been a conflict between Protestants and Catholics over this exact passage. Because in this passage, what we have is the question of, are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or are we saved by works? Which was at the forefront of the debate and the division over the Roman church from the Protestants. And when we read a passage like this, where James asks, where actually James says that we are saved not by faith alone, so clearly it ought to raise questions in the eyes and minds of every single Protestant. Thousands. I'm not shedding, uh, I'm not even speaking a word of a lie here. Thousands upon thousands of pages have been written over these verses. Conflicts have existed for over 500 years in the Christian church on how to interpret this passage. And if you think this morning that I'm going to solve all the issues, that would be beyond... I, I certainly am not going to solve all issues and bring all Christians together here this morning. But I do think that if we understand this passage in its context, that if we maybe step back from the controversies that have existed for over 500 years, maybe we can get some clarity. In reading both a Roman Catholic this week and, a, and several Protestants this week, I am still a convinced Protestant. That has not changed. I do believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but I do think that when we focus on the issue of faith versus works, we miss James's point entirely. That we impose upon the text something that exists after, and that we have created such confusion over what James has actually said, that if we would take a step back, if we would slow down, we could hear James in his own words and put together this book and this passage in a way that would help us, then maybe, just maybe, we might understand how faith is working itself out in a maturing way.
because James is writing that we would be become that we would become mature through action. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at this passage. I want to break it up into three parts, verses 14 through uh, 17. I want us to consider how we show our faith. In verses 18 and 19, I want us to not separate our faith and action. And in verses 20 through 26, I want us to consider what does it look like to have mature faith. So what does it mean, first of all, to show our faith? Beginning in verses 14 through 19, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So at the front and end of this section of verses, verses 14 and verse 17, James makes it very clear that faith has to have some sort of action. Otherwise, it's not a real living faith. It's a dead faith. In the context of what James is writing, let's step back, let's slow down, and let's think. What is James dealing with? James has been writing to a church in the face of persecution. They're in exile. My argument has been it's probably the first letter that's written in the New Testament in the early 40s. And so this is just a short time after Jesus' death and resurrection, the giving of the Spirit, and the growth of the church. But it is still primarily a Jewish church. There's no reference in this book to any, anything related to dietary laws or circumcision or works of the law like Paul would address to, to Gentiles. And so as a result, James is dealing with a congregation that's been facing persecution. They've been facing loss. They've had to flee. So after Stephen's death in Acts chapter 7 and 8, after Stephen speaks about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is killed for his faith, the church, we're told in Acts 8, had to scatter, and they had to flee. And as a result of their scattering and their fleeing, many of them would have lost jobs, homes, property, friendships, status, relationships, they would have lost almost everything except for the community of faith. So then when James writes, and because I think this letter has been interpreted by chopping it up and rather, under, rather than understanding that there is some logic and flow to it, when James writes, he is writing to people who have lost their cultural influence, who have lost their significance, and who have wanted to curry the favor of the rich. We saw that back in chapter 2 at the beginning where James says that, that when someone comes into your assembly who's well-dressed, don't give them the seat of honor. Rather, what you're to do is to treat people with dignity and equity and respect. And here, James now says, notice... In verse 15, he gives us our first example of what a maturing faith that works looks like. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Notice what James is trying to do. He is speaking about a fellow brother or sister in Jesus Christ. He's talking about a fellow believer here. And as he speaks about a fellow believer, I had to ask the question, how is it faith to give to a person in need? Long before we get to the issues of 
food banks or panhandlers or anything like that. The question needs to be, how is it an act of faith to give to a person in need? There are many unbelievers. There are many people who are not Christians. There are many other religions that seek to do good for other people. And so what makes this distinctively Christian? What is James saying? Why is he making this such a key point that, that faith displayed through giving to the poor and the needy is actually a display of faith? How is that faith? We need to answer that question. I think in the first sense that we need to start with where we ended off in James chapter 2 verses 13, in verse 13. James had said there, in speaking about not showing distinctions in the church and not favoring the rich, but, but being equitable in our treatment of others, he had said that judgment without mercy to one who is... Uh, sorry, he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. For James, there is first and foremost in our minds that the dignity of every person needs to be at the forefront. It needs to be right there. And the reason for this is that if we have been shown mercy, we do not act with a sense of superiority when helping someone else out. Rather, we begin from the position that God has shown me abundant mercy, therefore, what can I do except show great mercy? I owe nothing to anyone except the debt of love, as Paul would say. And so there is no acting of superiority. But the second thing that makes me think that what James is speaking about here is an act of faith being displayed is that if we remember the context, what makes giving to a person who is in need an act of faith is that these Christians were being called to give out of their lack. You don't have food. You don't have clothing. You don't have property. You don't have friendships. You don't have favor with the world. And what is the natural response? I got to take care of my own. And yet James says, if a brother or sister of yours is in need, you who've been persecuted, you who have had to go out, you've had to flee, if that's your situation, instead of saying, well, peace be with you, go and be well fed. Isn't there a sense in which we pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread? This was not written to the rich and to the powerful, but to the poor and to the displaced. It was written to people who would have to act every way in faith. To, to give a piece of bread was to give up a significant portion of their own. They were not giving out of their abundance, but out of their lack. This is what makes it faith. It's faith when you don't have to give to someone out of the lack. It is not faith to give out of your abundance. It is faith to give out of your lack. This is what James is speaking to. That instead of saying to your brother and sister, go in peace, be warm and be filled, there is a sense in which James is wanting to display what Jesus had taught his disciples in John 13, 34 and 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And how is that love displayed? It is displayed when out of our lack that we give. 
It is displayed that we don't consider first what we have and then give out of the abundance, but that we recognize we are a body, we are a community of faith, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, can God provide my daily bread? Can God provide me the clothing that I need? If I'm to give to someone who is in need and it's going to cost me and I'm going to feel that cost, that's where faith is. That's where faith is displayed. This is why James rejects favoritism. Why do you curry the favor of the rich? Why do you seek their honor? Why do you want them? Because it means that if you're trusting in the rich, they've got power, they've got wealth, and you don't have to trust the Lord in the same way. So don't show favoritism in the church, James says, because that's not a display of faith. Instead, the display of faith is that when you lack, you give out of your lack to the person who's in need. This is the display of faith. It is showing faith out of the lack, out of what we need. Which means for us that yes, it is good to go to a soup kitchen. Yes, it is good to serve those who are poor and needy. Yes, it is good to give out of our abundance. I am not condemning that. But the display of faith is first and foremost seen when you give when it is hard to give. When it hurts to give. That's faith. It's believing that, as Paul would say in Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory. My grandfather would say, God doesn't supply your greeds, He supplies your needs. And in that way, we recognize that when we are needy, God supplies our needs, and He supplies that need so that we might be a blessing to others. And when we give, not out of our abundance, but out of our lack, as Paul will commend the the Corinthians, look at the Macedonians. This is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Look at how they gave out of their lack That this is the display of faith. It's the belief that God supplies. And it shows that faith is real. Because faith is real when you feel the need, not when you merely have abundance. So what are the ways that you lack that God asks you to give? For some of us, it is going to be giving when we don't feel like forgiving. For some of us, it's going to feel incredibly painful and hard because what it requires of us is giving something great of us. And that is the test of faith. And so James wants us to show our faith, and he wants to show, have that faith shown primarily when we are in need. So the second thing that James wants to speak of is not just that we show our faith, but that we not separate our faith from action. Here in verses 18 and 19, we have a negative example that James gives. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Here, someone, uh, whoever this someone is, James picks up this, this interloker to have a conversation and discussion with, and he wants to challenge the idea that you can separate faith from works. He does this by simply stating that the way that, that this is done 
It's by saying, you have faith, I have works. This just isn't possible. Faith and works go together. That what faith produces is the works of saving faith. It displays itself. Luther would say it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And as a result of that, what James says here is that, listen, we can all make a profession of faith. It is easy to say, Jesus is Lord, He's died for my sins, He can forgive me. Or, as every Jew would have confessed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, which is what James is essentially referencing here. But James can say that mere doctrinal profession is not enough. Throughout this passage, what we have is this this language of you say, you say, you say. That begins in verses 14 and goes all the way through here. That that in uh, verses 18 and 19, we, we just have people saying things. But there's a contrast between mere talk and action. And James says, talk results in action. The example that he gives is he gives the example of how even demons can confess doctrinal orthodoxy. A demon can say, God is one. But what does this cause the demons to do? Do you see that at the end of verse 19, there's this little phrase that James tacks on. That demons even believe that God is one. In a world full of many gods, where demons are tempting people to believe that there are other gods than the one true God. Even demons believe that there is one God. But this isn't saving for them. What does it cause them to do? Shudder. Because doctrinal truth, apart from doctrinal action, results in condemnation. It's just talk to say and not to do is to confess maybe that God is one. But it means that that God, because God is one, if you believe that God is one, then what this needs to be displayed in is in mercy, in kindness, and in sacrifice. This is James' point. The point is not merely, yes, we need to have doctrinal accuracy. That's important. It also needs to be connected with action. And we're all growing to connect what we say and what we do. But James's point is you can't just merely say things and not do things. Because if there is no mercy, if there is no kindness, if there is no sacrifice, anything less than mercy, kindness, and sacrifice is demonic. So James does not want us to separate faith from action because that's what demons do. He wants us to show our faith by our works. And the last thing that James wants us to see then is that we mature our faith and we mature our faith through works in the face of trial. James gives two more examples. He's a guy who's just, he's a sermon illustrator, right? The first example in verses 14 through 17 is if someone's lacking out of your lack, give. 
The second example being that if even if demons make the right doctrinal confession and there's no action, that's not a display of the changing power of God. But now James will say in verses 20 through 26 that faith is matured through our works in times of testing. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. I want to come back to that phrase there. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So here are the two final examples that James wants to give us of how faith is matured through times of testing and sacrifice. And he gives the examples of Abraham and Rahab. In the first example that we have in verses 21 through 23, we are given the example of Abraham. Abraham was promised by God, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great, your name is going to go to the ends of the earth, all the nations will be blessed through you. Which meant that Abraham was expecting that he would have many sons. But after years and years of being unable to have a son, God finally did give him one son through Sarah, his, his wife. And in giving that son, it looked as though God had finally kept his promise. But in Genesis 22, we are told that God tested Abraham. And he asked Abraham to go from his land, to go to the mount that he would show him, to a place that was foreign. He would go into exile, essentially, and out of his comfort zone, he was to take his son. And there on that mountain, Mount Moriah, he was to offer his son as a sacrifice. It was a three-day journey as they went, and finally as they arrived at the, mount, at the mount, Isaac looked around and said, we've got the wood, we've got everything, the fire, but we have no sacrifice, and Isaac was bound to the altar. And in a world where it was full of child sacrifice, this would have been so hard for Abraham to understand. How could God keep his promise if he's going to ask me to surrender my son? Yet the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, that it says that in the face of this test, that Abraham acted in faith. Hebrews eleven seventeen, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham was so convinced that God would keep his promise that his only son, out of, not out of his abundance did he give, but out of his lack, out of his only son, he would offer up his son in obedience in being tested by God. And in the moment, as he raises his knife, an angel of the Lord appears and tells him, Stop. 
Abraham, I see that you will obey. I see that you trust me. And a a ram was provided in the thickets. And here Abraham was tested. And James goes on to say, by quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham, the script, verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. But Genesis 22 and the offering up of Isaac comes after Genesis 15, verse 6, that Paul, that, sorry, that James quotes here. What is James trying to say? Abraham had made a confession of faith. He was declared righteous by God. That righteousness was accredited to his account. So what is James trying to say? He's trying to say, listen, you don't just add add works to your faith. Faith produces works. Faith is, is the ability, what faith does, it has, had, it has this ability to believe that God has good works that He has prepared for you in advance that you should walk in them. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. This is not adding faith to our works. It's not being saved by works. It is showing that our faith trusts God in the hardest of times when we lack by believing that God is able to provide and to keep His promises at all times. That when we lack, God loves to show up and display, you trust me, I will provide. I will give. I'm asking you, Abraham, to give your only son, your one and only son, a child of promise, to bless the whole world, and now you're asking me to sacrifice him, and yet Abraham believed that God could even raise him from the dead, as Hebrews 11 says. And in verse 22, it says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. This ought to take us back to chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith is intended intended to produce steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full work so that you may be complete, mature, not lacking anything. You see, what God's testing is doing is it's maturing our faith. It's deepening our faith. It's enriching our faith. It's calling us to trust Him, not when we have much, but when we lack. The question of, do you need more faith? Faith doesn't come by just trying to believe harder. We're not health and wealth. We don't believe that if I just believe enough, I can get rid of sickness, or I can get rid of poverty, or I can get rid of difficulties. The greater display of faith, the more miraculous display of faith is someone who says, I trust God, He is good, He will provide, and I lack. It is someone who is sick and who still says, God is good all the time. There is no disconnect between asking for a miracle and pressing on and being steadfast in the face of trial. These two go together because this is how God deepens and matures faith. As He takes you through deep waters, but He doesn't let you drown. You feel the fire, 
but it doesn't burn you. The great displays of faith all throughout the Bible are not people who are just extracted from their problems and lifted six feet off the ground and float above them, but who press on through storms and who endure in trials. It is great faith to see someone who loves God and who has an enduring illness. Who still prays, God heals me, God heal me, but who doesn't heal them. God rescue me out of this perilous situation, yet walk steadfastly in the face of that. That, James says, is what faith looks like. He's talking to persecuted Christians. They can't just find a way out of their persecution. They have to trust God by walking through the persecution. Being steadfast. Which is why he gives the second example. The second example he gives is of Rahab. The prostitute, he even says. The story of Rahab, the prostitute, it starts in Joshua chapter 2. The spies of Israel are coming in to scope out Jericho, the big walled city. And as they come, they find this prostitute, Rahab, and she lodges them in her home as they scope out Jericho. In, in Joshua 2, verses 8 through 13, she confesses that Yahweh is the God, the Lord of heaven and of earth. And as she makes this confession, she asks the spies to remember her. Because what the king of Jericho had asked was for her to turn over the spies to him so that they could be eradicated. But instead of handing over these Jewish believers in the Lord God, she hides them and she sends them out of the city and keeps them safe. Why does James give this example? I think that what James is doing here is that in the face of persecution, what are you tempted to do when the government says, stop preaching and teaching Jesus Christ, stop meeting and gathering together, or else let us know? They give you a snitch line, right? They want you to turn people over. And what did Rahab do in the face of her political king of Jericho? She resisted. It takes faith to resist political power when you don't have any, when you're a shameful Gentile. And here is what I think James is saying, that Rahab the prostitute was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Is that she was facing all the threats of enormous political power and she resisted. And that was faith in action. And what it caused in Rahab was a deep and maturing and abiding faith that could remain steadfast when the world was against her. Her world was against her. You see, Christians don't turn each other in in the times of persecution. What they do is they stick together as brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't curry political favor and power from the rich, as chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 is pointing out. They press in together and they care for one another and they love one another and they give to one another so that there is not a needy person among them. This is why the ministry of mercy is not just some add-on to the church. It is essential to the church because it is how we display our love one for another. 
So the question then is, how are we to endure in a world that is increasingly hostile to the message of Jesus Christ? This is James' fundamental point. He's not suddenly jumping to justification as though it's out of the question. He is raising this question because it is practical for how we endure in a hostile world. The way that we endure is that we remember that the God who calls us to faith is the God who sent His one and only Son. That where Abraham was called to send to go to a mountain, go into exile, go out of his land, just as these Jewish believers have been exiled, just as these Jewish believers in Jesus Christ have had to flee for their lives, so God sent his one and only son who left heaven and came to earth. And he came to exile territory for us. And there on Mount Moriah, this hill, this mountain, the mountain of the Lord, it would be later known as the mountain of Jerusalem. There, God's one and only Son was offered up. That He, by faith, Luke will tell us over and over and over again, that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men, Luke 2, 52. As He grew in wisdom and stature and favor in God and with men, He obeyed His Father fully. That when he lacked, when he was in the desert, when he didn't have, when he had fasted for 40 days and he had no food and the devil came to him and tempted him with turning stones into bread, to throw himself off the temple, to bow down to Satan so that he could have all of the kingdoms of the world. When Jesus was in his greatest moment of need, he stood fast and was steadfast. And he was steadfast because he wanted to show us a faith that works. But more than that, he didn't just show us a faith that works, but he is able to give us a faith that works. You see, the good news here is that we can all look at our lives and go, there have been many times where I have not been steadfast. And I have faced trials. And I have left things undone that I should have done. There's not a single person in this room who can't say that. We have all fallen short. But the good news of Jesus Christ is this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13 And when we sit and we soak in the mercy that God has shown us, then how can we not be excessively overcome with wanting to show more mercy? Paul will say this in Romans 12, that we do not repay evil with evil, but we repay evil with good. That what we are intended to do is leave room for the wrath of God, for vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, when your enemy is hungry, you feed him. 
You show acts of mercy because it confounds the world that instead of screaming and yelling about our rights, we don't have to do that. Because we have all of the rights of heaven. And so in a world that is always wanting to be showing up and standing up for rights, you know what our right is? Is to show mercy. And if we would abound in mercy, then we would have faith that is in action. Because the faith that needs to be displayed in this world is not merely going to a soup kitchen, though I would love for you to do that. It is that in a world where evil is done, we do not repay evil for evil, but we repay evil with good. And we show kindness to one another, and we are a community of grace and forgiveness, and we are a community of love because we believe that mercy triumphs over judgment. And as a result of that, then we abound in doing good. We're abounding in the good works of the Lord. Because what we are aiming for is this recognition that we are not merely speaking words, but we are holding fast to a faith that acts under pressure. And this is why Abraham is called a friend of God. When you believe that God is good and that He is not only Lord and King, but He is also friend, then you believe that He is doing good for you and showing you mercy that you might show mercy to others. So church, can we abound in that? Can we abound in showing mercy? Can we continue to grow, each one of us, and then collectively as a people who so dearly love one another that it abounds from the heart? Let's pray. Father, you have shown us mercy, a mercy that we did not deserve. You have shown us kindness upon kindness. And I pray, Father, that you would enable us then as your people to have a faith that is on display to one another and to the world. We're not trying to prove our faith. We're trying to act out of it. This is faith working itself out in love, like Paul says in Galatians 5. Let our faith be seen in love, which motivates us to action. Would you strengthen us and help us to be true Christians in a world that needs to know mercy and grace that abounds? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.